Welcome to the podcast of Lancaster Brethren in Christ Church, located in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. LBIC is a community being transformed by the love of Jesus, sharing this love with all people. We want this podcast to be an extension of our community and a connection with familiar voices. Together, we want to think about how to follow Jesus in our particular moment. So enjoy the podcast. We're grateful to have you join us as a part of the LBIC family. Matthew chapter 22. We will be there in just a moment. Mark, you better believe the first thing I did when I got home from leadership team meeting was tell my wife (laughs) what the numbers were. Um, Yeah, thanks to everybody just for your participation in the process. Um, It's it's been since late May, early June since all this began and um, it's just been pretty awesome to look back over the last couple months and see um, how it's just, I mean, it's a relatively quick process, but God's just been guiding it the whole way through. And so uh, thank you for being, for being a part of that. Really, really appreciate it. All right, well, uh, let's dive in here this morning with the 10 minutes I have left. <laughs> I'm just joking. Uh, um, sometimes when we think about our, our life with God, when we think about our, our formation, our discipleship, Um, we feel pressure. We feel pressure to be who we aren't yet more quickly. And so we have this idea about who God wants us to be, uh, an idea about who we want to be uh, based upon who God wants us to be. And we think these things, uh, or at least we would hope these things happen quickly. Um, But if, uh, and maybe this is just my experience, maybe you've had this experience too, but it doesn't seem to go very quick. Anybody else have that experience? I, I do. I wish um, my own formation, my own sense of Christ-likeness, my own development would go quicker, but oftentimes it, it doesn't. At least that's what I've found. Uh, Dallas Willard, who's a writer, he's passed on now. He writes a lot on spiritual formation, um, but he always used this particular phrase when he talked about our, our life of faith that really grounded it for me and, and helped me. Uh, think about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Uh, He would talk about the phrases, he would talk about our life with God, or our with God life. I always appreciated that phrase, life with God. The the word life can help me consider everything. And part of the work of our formation, part of the work of discipleship is to have uh, our our life with God take up more and more space, um, be more and more fully embodied in in the totality of our life. And so for me, it it meant uh, over the years growing beyond just thinking about my life with God in terms of quiet times or Bible reading or church attendance or spiritual activity or those kinds of things. Uh, But that phrase, life with God, helped me think about all of life helping me see even the mundane stuff. And this is actually where I rest a lot now is, is I, I, I try to think of and, and pay attention to how all the mundane things are the things that God uses and the ways uh, God uses to form me. Just seeing the mundane. Uh, the mundane of doing dishes and, and laundry, uh, the mundane of family spats, you know. Uh, I have three teenagers, well, no, two teenagers and a 20-year-old. Okay, yeah. Who are all gifted with the gift of sarcasm. Um, That's the language we speak at our our house is sarcasm. 
Um, but in the mundane of mowing lawns or weeding flower beds or going to work or paying bills, all of that is, and I've learned, uh, to be life with God or the opportunity to be present with God in life. Uh, life with God, the word life there is also very generous, I think, is in its understanding of time because it's all of life. Uh, when people feel pressure, either in their spiritual life or in a decision, um, or, or, or just as they, they look at the, the phase of life that they're in, oftentimes I try to help them think, okay, but what's this like in five years? What's this like in ten years? Because life takes place in years and decades, not just seconds and minutes and hours. But that's how most of us think. There is immediacy to our expectations of our spiritual life. We think that transformation happens quickly, and sometimes it might happen in a moment, but that is simply the result of things building over time. And so we pay attention to that moment, but if we look through the lens of that moment backwards, we'll see a lot of little things that have contributed to it. And so life with God is a lifetime. It's a process of transformation that never stops. Friends, you're never going to arrive, and so take that pressure off of yourselves. You're never going to be perfect, so take that pressure off of yourselves. You're going to be in a continual process of transformation under the gaze of a loving God. In some ways, it also helped change the question from uh, thinking about um, my life with God. That, that phrase helped me change the question from what am I doing, which focuses on my activity, to who am I becoming, which is a question of being. And so much of our, our, our thoughts sometimes are focused on what we're doing versus who we're becoming and who we're being. I also, just lastly, love the word with. It's not for God, but it's with God. It's not my life for God, but it's my life with God. With God, as we walk together this long road, however many days it is, of life. God with me, God with us, Christ with us. Uh, this passage we're about to read um, has been used to, to think about many different things, but... Um, at least the way I want to focus it this morning and what I would have us to pay attention to is this idea that I think holds it all together and it's helping us think about our life with God or how all of life is God's. And so this may not seem as we begin uh, to, to be the focus of this passage, but um, hang on to that thought of life with God as, as we move down through it. So here it is, Matthew 22, chapter... Or, chapter 15 through 22. That would be more time than Mark gave me. Uh, try chapter 15. Oh my gosh. 22 verses 15 through 22. All right. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. Just pay attention to that phrase. Hang on to that for a minute. They sent their disciples along with him with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin for paying the tax. Then they brought him a denarius. And he asked, well, who, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said, so give back to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what's God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and they went away. 
Now, one of the most natural readings uh, of this text is political because uh, the passage addresses various political realities of the day. The Pharisees, although they were religious, were political. The Herodians, and we'll talk about this in a little bit, were political. But I'm not so sure this is a political passage, although we have to understand some of the political realities of Jesus' day in order to understand the passage. I think it's probably okay to make some deductions or, or make some conclusions about uh, politics from it. Uh, this probably in Anabaptist circles of which we're a part would be a passage of scripture uh, that Anabaptists would use in such a way to draw um, some distinctions about church and state and trying to understand church and state and those kinds of things. And I think that's okay in as much as it helps us follow Jesus. That's not the road I'm going to take this morning. Uh, because I don't think it's primarily political, and this is, this is why. Politics here is being used as a means to trap Jesus. It's not like Jesus is the Sermon on the Mount, and this is a teaching time. Disciples, I'm going to teach you now about the church and the state, and this is how you really ought to relate to the state as a member or a follower of me. Instead, there's two groups of people who are using a political question in order not to learn from Jesus. They have no interest. <laughs> Their sincerity here is a bit less than sincere, right? They're, they're, this is not a sincere question. They're using this question to trap Jesus. Now, what's interesting, if you look back through the ministry of Jesus and you just read the, read the Gospels, what's interesting is that how, how little attention Jesus pays to Rome throughout his ministry. If you look at the scope and the, uh, of, of the ministry of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, you'd really be hard pressed to find anything that directly addresses Rome. Now, that's very counter to the expectation the people had of the Messiah, building up both the time of Jesus and before that. And so in Assyrian captivity or Babylonian captivity or now under Roman occupation, they would have had expectations for the Messiah to free them from such people. And so that's an expectation that people had for the Messiah was um, to lead a revolution, so to speak, against the oppressor. But it's so interesting throughout the, the whole entire ministry of Jesus how uninterested Jesus seems to be in beginning a revolution of that sort against a major oppressive power. So I want us to sit with verse 15 this morning and this idea for, for just a moment and this idea of laying a trap for Jesus. Laying a trap for Jesus. This word trap in the Greek has, um, has kind of a... a an animal sort of meaning behind it. Um, it's, it's used in the animal kingdom to trap your prey. So if it's a bird, you're laying a snare to trap, to contain, uh, and eventually kill the bird. If it's an animal, um, it's a trap to, to lay it, to capture it, uh, in order to capture, control, control and kill the, the, the animal. And so this, this idea of trapping is they're wanting to contain Jesus and the things that Jesus has been saying. And we want to bring last week's passage into this week's passage because it has to do, those two have to relate to each other. Uh, they, the, the Pharisees go from the passage last week, which was the passage of the wedding feast and the wedding banquet, 
And this immense, gracious feast. Remember the, the, the big spread of bread that we had up here to represent that last week. And how there were good and there were bad people at this feast and at this wedding and on the dance floor, so to speak. And you move from that passage and the generosity of that passage to this place where the Pharisees and the Herodians are trying to trap Jesus and contain Jesus, and control Jesus, and control this idea of how he's talking about God and God's kingdom. I think these two things we can hold side by side as a way to think about how we think about our faith. Because sometimes we can treat our faith, and sometimes the church even treats our faith, as a means to trap one another. Right? Uh, so it, it, the idea of a trap is, is to contain, and there's not freedom in that. And sometimes the church operates in that way. We want your ideas to fit within this little box so that you're safe. Don't ask any questions that are out of bounds. Don't doubt. Don't do all these things. In some ways, sometimes religion tries to trap us, and it's been used in that way. But when we think about the kingdom of God and juxtaposed to that from the, the, the passage that we talked about last week, there's this immense freedom to respond to an invitation of God that is marked by a, a banquet feast and a wedding. And so you can, you can put these two things side by side. And I think um, beyond just the, the context of this passage, it's a way for us to be able to think and imagine what it is like to follow Jesus. And so the church ought to be leading, the message of the church ought to be leading people to a place of freedom, not trapping them, right, but freedom and setting people free. This is part of the mission of Jesus, is setting people free, leading people into freedom. And, but oftentimes we get stuck in this, okay, well, religion has to trap people, keep people in within whatever bounds it may be. And so these two ideas juxtaposed to one another, I think, help us to think about the kind of, of way we experience faith in God and the kind of message that we also communicate to people as they're interested in following Jesus, right? They're invited to this banquet. They're invited to this feast. Good and the bad. They're all invited. You know, it's just the question of whether they're going to enter into and respond to that invitation into the banquet hall. So the Pharisees and the Herodians, they use religion and politics. My aunt says those are the two things in her Italian family that were forbidden at the table, right? And they put them into uh, one camp or the other. So let's talk about the nature of the trap for a minute. So talking about politics in Jesus' time for a few minutes, so some context. So there's two groups, the Pharisees and the Herodians. The Pharisees, as we know, are the leaders of the temple and the synagogue, the religious system of the time. They were learned in Torah. They, they knew the law. They knew the prophets. And then alongside of them are the Herodians, which is a group that you might not be as familiar with. They're, they're kind of the group that tried to play both sides of the fence. And so tried to be pleasing to Rome in that political atmosphere and those kinds of things, but tried to hold on to their Jewish heritage as well. And so benefiting from, from both. The Herodians would have been the folks who would have been in charge of temple ta or taxes, um, you know, tax collectors you hear throughout the Gospels and those kinds of things, most likely would have came through the, the group of the Herodians. Uh, Roman taxes were levied on everything, personal property. Some, some say it was up to 40%. So you think taxes are bad here. 40% back then actually moved to Canada. They're actually probably about the same. I think that was about what it was when we were there. Um, but uh, this is... Uh, 
the, the tax collector piece or whatnot, um, this is why throughout the Gospels these tax collectors were talked about with such disdain. Um, because they would talk or charge not only the Roman tax, but then, then they would put uh, taxes on top of that to fill their pockets. And they had the weight of Rome behind them to do that. And so you have the Herodians who uh, are, are conspiring with Rome. Uh, you have the Pharisees who are in charge of the temple and the law and those kinds of things. And these two, these two groups of people would not collude in this way. Right? But they do around the person of Jesus. And for the trap, they use this thing called the Roman denarii, which is the equivalent of a day's uh, labor. Steve, if you want to put up the picture, uh, here's an example of what this coin might look like. And so on one side is an image, and that image was Caesar. On the other side uh, was an inscription, and it says, uh, it says divine Julius. And so there's an inscription of divinity on the other side. Uh, some it would be common in that day and that time to, be, to call Caesar, whoever the Caesar was at the time, the son of, of God. And so it's a pretty brilliant question they pose to Jesus. And in spite of all the, the flattery and this not being a genuine question, it's, it's a pretty brilliant one. Um, and so here's the trap. If Jesus says, yes, you should pay taxes to Caesar, He'll not only upset the Pharisees, but the Jewish people who loathe Rome. So in the beginning of Jesus' life, in the early, uh, just in the early decade of, of the beginning of the ADs, um, so to speak, uh, there was a Jewish revolt led by Judas, uh, not the Judas that we associate with Jesus. Um, but there was a, a, a revolt that was led, and there was a, many uh, Jewish uh, citizens, Jewish people in the military who were killed. And, and so if he says, yes, pay, pay taxes to Caesar, he's not only upsetting the religious establishment, but he's also upsetting those people who've lost lives into a revolution. So if he says yes to Caesar, he upsets the Jews. If he says no to Caesar, he could easily be accused with sedition. It would put him at odds with the state. And so this could be and would be something that would put him to death, most likely on a cross, had they gotten wind of it. And so he's trapped, no matter what he says. At least they're expecting that he's trapped. It's either going to be a yes or a no answer. This is, this, is, this is how the traps of politics work, right? It has to be a yes or a no answer. But Jesus calls out to them and he says, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me a coin. That's a funny thing, because the fact that they have a coin on them is an automatic violation of their own religion. So they're trying to trap him, and, 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 and he's like, oh, show me a dollar bill. Well, they're not supposed to have it on them because it violates the first two commandments, not to have any other gods before him and not to have any, make any images of God, right? And so just the fact that they have this coin on them implicates them in their hypocrisy. And so he asks whose image and whose inscription, to which they reply, Caesar, and so Jesus says, give to Caesar what's Caesar, and to God what's God's. And that's where I think the, the crux of this passage is. What is God's? What is God's? Well, very simply, I'm God's, and you're God's. The early church father, Tertullian, says this. He says, render to Caesar Caesar's image, which is on the coin, and to God, God's image, which is on man. 
right? You and I are made and created in the image of God. And so this question, what is God's? Give to God, what is God's? Well, what is God's? What is God's? On one hand, it's kind of a trick question. It's a good rabbinical response, right? Because everything is God's. And so in in one way, it's a statement. Everything is God's. But it's also a judgment, right? Because everything is not God's. So on one hand, I can say in my life as, as a confession, yes, everything is God's. And at the same time, I can say as a confession in my life, nope, but everything is not God's. And that's part of the life with God, right? We move from everything being God's, this truth that encompasses it, to living into that truth where everything is God's. But we live with the reality that there are parts of our life that are not God's. Some of us might do a great job, and I think this is part of a natural way of handling things, doing a great job separating God into parts and pieces of our life. We have, and, 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 and in some ways it's a developmental thing. I think for me, uh, when, when I was younger, when I was a kid, when I was being brought up in the, in the faith or whatnot, I, I, I thought, well, these are the things that are God's, the, the spiritual things I do, the activities that I do for God, and those, those kinds of things. And so I think in some ways from the beginning, we're taught to segment different pieces and parts of our, our, our lives. And we can look at that and we can think, oh yeah, I'm doing okay. Um, but when we live like that, we haven't learned to live integrated lives yet. And this is what life with God is like. It's an integration of all of our life. The mundane, what we would maybe think of as not spiritual and the spiritual. I suppose we could say in some ways that we see this in the lives of the Pharisees and the Herodians. In the case of the Pharisees, Jesus continues throughout the Gospels, and we've, we've said in the last couple of weeks that he's got much, much more pointed and pointing out the separation of what they know, and they know a lot, and they know a lot of good things. They know the scriptures, right? But that knowledge has not gotten down to the heart. They have not become integrated people, whole people, where the knowledge of the mind, even of good things, has gotten into the heart. They have the right answers, but they don't have the right understanding. And there's a difference between the two. The Herodians are a bit different. We might think of them as representative of all of the different ways political parties throughout history have used God. They use God and God's name to solidify their power. And I'm not going to go on this tangent today. Um, uh, but, but friends, know that anytime political realities seek to use God to their advantage, they diminish God. And they do not fully represent God. They're doing it for their own ends and their own means. It is, it is for power and control and to trap. And so that's why, from, from, from a Christ follower's perspective, you know, we want to look with skepticism um, and a prophetic voice speaking to the parties that are in power in matters of justice and ethics not being co-opted by them, but being the annoying voice that just never lets them go, right? Less cheering and more like, hey, but have you thought of? What about this? What about that? Let's advocate for these people. Let's not forget them, okay? 
tangent over. So everything is God's. Everything is God's. And growing in our life with God means growing in this understanding more and more that everything in life, everything in your life is God's. Everything in your life is God's. I want to show you another image. Uh, It's an image of a castle that's very dark, apparently. It's a dark and foreboding castle. It's one filled with hope. Um, St. Teresa of Avila uh, writes this book called The Interior Castle, and this is an image that's supposed to depict such a thing. Uh, But the idea of this interior castle is that in the middle of the castle, there's this pure, pure diamond whose brilliance just fills the whole castle with, um, with its light, right? And so she, she talks about this idea of the interior castle as the way um, our faith kind of moves, so to speak. And so we all start on the exterior of the castle. And the goal is to move more and more inward. That's not inward and away from people, inward in a way that disengages from the world or anything like that. But this is our life with God. Um, and she talks about uh, the, the journey of the spiritual life being deeper and deeper into the castle, living more and more from that place that is close to the diamond where the, the presence of God illuminates everything. Now, what I find interesting is oftentimes, maybe even in my past, I've thought about, well, if I have this castle, then it's my job to open the doors so God can get into every part of my life. This, this kind of turns that on its head a little bit, because if you're made in the image of God and you accept that image, right? And that, so that's part of it. As we look in the, at the world, every human being is made in the image of God. Uh, there's, there's just a lot of people that aren't living out of that image or don't uh, know that image or don't accept that image, but that doesn't mean that they haven't been created in God's image. And so as we who are followers of Jesus accept that truth that we've been created in God's image and God's spirit dwells in us, uh, the journey is more and more to the, to the center. Now, it's not our job necessarily to open all the doors then as people who are, are, are created in the image of God and filled with the Spirit of God with this diamond living in the middle, so to speak. It's not our job to open the door so that God has all the rooms in your life. What rooms are, are you not allowing God into would probably be the question that some people could ask or one of the ways that you might ask that question. But I don't think that's the right question. Because God dwells in you, and, and it seems to be uh, the case in our, our formation that there's an invitation, just like last week, of the banquet. So if you want to exchange the diamond for the banquet, right, and you want to move closer and closer to the banquet, it seems that oftentimes we're satisfied with living on the outer walls. We want to kind of keep our distance from God. But the journey as St. Teresa would, would call it, is, is the journey is inward, closer and closer and closer to the presence of God that already dwells in you. And so we might even think about it in terms of depth. We go deeper and deeper and deeper within to where God dwells within us. The call and the invitation is to always go more deeply with God. St. Teresa also has this imagery of, um, of a fountain that it, she says is just filled with the Spirit. And, and um, she talks about how the fountain just continues to grow 
You can never, uh, it, it, God will continue to fill it no matter how big it gets. And that's the image she uses for the soul, right? And so we might think of ourselves in a physical kind of space, but this idea that we cannot exhaust the depths of God in our life, right? Any journey that we make towards the inner rooms uh, opens up more and more and more space within us to our awareness of the presence of God. So this is one way that she talks about the journey of life with God. And this is one way she talks about everything um, being God's. And so the choice for us, I think, and the choice that will always be our choice is how deeply we would venture towards the center. How deeply we would venture towards the center. For the same reason that we see in the Pharisees and the Herodians, they pose this question to Jesus because I think part part of what they're seeing and they're experiencing with Jesus is what do you do with the massive freedom that this kingdom that he's describing is bringing. They want control, they want power. Jesus wants to bring freedom. And all of us do this in some ways. I think all of us try and attempt to control God. But the journey, the spiritual journey, the the journey of following Jesus is growing more and more into our understanding and our experience of everything being God's. All of life being God's. Ken, you can get the kids here for communion. They're going to come up and join us here in a minute. A lot of this has been inward uh, talk, but for the last minute, I want to look just outward at the world. Pharisees and the Herodians use politics as a trap for Jesus because Politics, as I shared earlier, is largely about yes or no. It's largely about camps, whose camp you're in. And unlike the parable of the last week with all these different kinds of people being at the wedding banquet, politics has a way of creating ins and outs, people who deserve our compassion or people who don't. And I don't think this is unique to our time. But I do think that we experience today what Jesus experienced in this passage. And actually, friends, if you look back at the prophets, you read the prophets, you read the historical books, it's the same thing that Israel experienced, Israel and Judah experiences too. And it's this temptation towards a trap. And this is super oversimplification, I realize this. But here's the trap, and the trap is this. You can only choose one group to align yourself with. Only one group to be right. You can only choose one group to humanize. That's the trap. And humanizing one means demonizing the other. And I don't know if you see this or experience it or feel it as you look at the world, but I certainly do. Like to show compassion to one automatically means you're making a judgment against another. And it's a hard place to live. But I think where God's people can live in the midst of this time, and this is something I think God's people are always invited to live out of, but if everything is God's, then it goes to say that everyone is God's. If everything is God's, then everyone is God's. And we can't separate everything being God's without also talking about the love of our neighbor 
because our, our global and our local neighbor, they all bear the image of God. And so if everything is God's, every one is God's. And this is the voice too, I believe, of the church throughout history and our time. It doesn't matter. I think this is one of the prophetic um, uh, statements or um, things that the church continues to remind itself. It never allows uh, society or culture or power or politics to be satisfied with just helping one person or, oh, we did it there, oh, okay, good, but what about them? What about the other? You know, it, it's always a consistent eye out to who is oppressed, who's being left out, who needs cared for. And our voice is always sounding for those people, always sounding for those people. And it never stops and it's never going to this side of heaven, right? We continue to advocate for those who don't have voices, whether that be culturally, whether that be because of skin color, because of economics, like that is continually the voice of the church, is to remember that all people are God's people. Whether they fill pews or not, doesn't matter. All people are God's people. All people have the imprint of the image of God on them.